Amen. So I, I don't know if you've heard this objection before to Christianity. I've heard it many times. I'm curious to what your thought is. The objection goes a little bit like this. You Christians are always picking and choosing. You Christians are always picking and choosing the parts of the Bible you want to follow. The Bible says you should not eat shellfish, and yet you seem to gobble down shrimp. The Bible says you should not wear clothes that are made from multiple fabrics, and yet uh, polyester pants were all the rage back in the day. And then you get all upset about, uh, let's say, homosexuality. And you're you're uh, hypocritical. You're inconsistent, maybe at best. You're just picking and choosing the rules in the Bible you wish to follow. What's your answer to that objection? What are some possible answers to that objection? And uh, on the surface, it seems to kind of get really at an issue. What would y'all What would y'all say if you were faced with that question? I hope you I hope you have. I hope you're talking to people and they're bringing these kind of objections to you. What would you say in response to that question, that, that objection? I would say that you know, Mike, I should have you up here then. I don't think so. I think, uh, I think uh, yeah, yeah, you're already making some key distinctions. You're making a distinction between Types of law. You're saying there's a moral law, there's a ceremonial law. That's very interesting. Okay. And so just to tease out the argument, you'd be saying that the ceremonial law is the law, let's say, about shrimp or about polyester. And uh, right. putting a fence around your uh, roof, which was required back in the Old Testament laws. I don't see anybody here. I don't know anybody who owns a house that has a fence around your roof. Maybe you do. The gutters don't count. Any other, yeah, other, other considerations when it comes to this objection? What else would you say? I think that's a very good point. How can we make the claim that the ceremonial law no longer uh, matters? How can we say that? Okay, it all points to Christ. It being the law, right? Ceremonial law, right? All, all points to Christ. Okay, very good. What else would you say? What other responses could you have to this uh, this kind of defeater, this subjection to the faith? So when the Gentiles were brought into Christianity, uh, it was a you know a distinction between Jewish law and what was required or expected of Christian Gentiles. Right, Israel and the globe, Israel and the Gentiles. So there's a distinction there. Very good. I'm not really interested in in, any more answers, not because y'all couldn't give them to me, but because that's not the purpose. The purpose is simply to show you this this little opening exercise that every one of us has to put our Bible together somehow. That when you're answering this question, you are making a judgment about the role of the Old Testament law. And you're already divvying it up into certain ways. Ways, by the way, not everybody would make this distinction. In fact, I would, I would argue to, that, that many of the churches around, particularly, and I, just, to, just to name denomination, our, our Baptist brothers and sisters would not say uh, what, uh, what Mike just said about the moral law, that the moral law continues. That's a, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that in, in due time today. 
Um, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, better known by his medieval name Rashi, Rabbi Rashi, or I'll call him Shlomo. Shlomo wrote a very famous paper about a thousand years ago, very influential rabbi. If if we were in the synagogue, they would know Rashi. They would know him. He's just like the guy. He's like the Thomas Aquinas or the Augustine. He asked this question when he's writing his commentary on on the Bible, on the Old Testament. He says, why does the Torah not start with Exodus 12, verse 1? Anybody memorize Exodus 12, verse 1? I'd be shocking. I'd be shocked if you did. I'll read it to you. It's okay. This month, the Lord said to Moses, this month shall be for you the first of this month. The beginning of months, rather. This month shall be the start of your year, basically. His his argument is, why does the Bible start with Genesis 1 instead of starting with Exodus 12, verse 1? Because you know, for Jews, the, the law, the Torah, is all essential. And Rashi, when he's making this argument, he's saying, why does the Bible not begin with the first law? I think if most of us had to be asked the question, what is the, what is the covenant at Mount Sinai? What is the book of Leviticus about? We would say, we would be tempted to say, law. What is Numbers about? Law. What is the second half of Exodus about? Law. What is Deuteronomy about? Law. Rules. Because we're very attuned, we're very keenly aware of the Pharisees and of their errors. And so we're very, we're very attuned to a certain place of the law. We know we like shrimp. Some of us hopefully do. We know we like to wear, maybe not polyester, but you know, clothes that come from multiple fabrics. We know intuitively, in a sense, that we don't follow part of the law of Moses. But I return to the question that I started with last week. How do you connect, how do you deal with Romans 3.31? What Paul says in Romans 3.31, we uphold the law. How do you deal with what Paul says? On the one hand, we uphold the law. And on the other hand, Romans 6.14, we're not under the law. Uphold the law, but not under the law. This is the question we have to deal with. This is the most difficult, in some ways, questions in the whole Bible. What is the place of the law given at Mount Sinai? What's the place for us as Christians and for them back in the day? We looked at last week, and just by way of summary, just for review purposes, we, we argued, I argued, and you didn't uh, push back too much, so I guess you agree. I argued that the covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai is not a works-based covenant. It is not based upon you will do this and you will live. Rather, that was given, even though that's a quote of Leviticus 18.5, direct quote. Rather, that is given, that demand for obedience leading to blessing, that demand for disobedience leading to cursing, That is given in the context, in the bubble, in the shell of the covenant of grace. We looked at the Ten Commandments as the prime example. The Ten Commandments began with an indicative. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of slavery. Then they proceeded to the imperatives. Do this. Do not do this. Thou shalt not. 
And so the basic argument is that just like with Abraham, as we'll see with David, as we see in Christ, there is one covenant of grace, one golden thread throughout Scripture from Genesis 3.15 onward. That was the big break I argued for. Y'all gave other breaks that were great, but the big break I argued for was before the gospel announcement in Genesis 3.15 and after. Before then, it's just works and we fail. After, it's grace. And there's a possibility that we might be included in that covenant, including at Mount Sinai. That's by way of review. Any questions on that? I ran through it super fast. Okay. Let's go ahead and look here. You have your outline. We're going to look at uh, two uh, trinities, two troikas, two trios. That's a better way of putting it. Two trios today. First trio, as we think about the, the law, the first trio is to ask ourselves, what are the uses? What is the law used for? There are three uses commonly popularly seen. First use. Let me encourage you to turn to Romans 13. First use. Political. Romans 13. Now note this is a New Testament reference, just as a side note. I'll just read a little bit here. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, Paul says, for there is no authority except for God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. Rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do what's good. You will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, etc., etc. This is just one example. I can go to others. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Go to other places to show us that even in the New Testament, this law, the law is given, this is a traditional Reformed approach, the law is given to restrain sin. Rulers are not given simply for good, they're given primarily to punish evil. Therefore, this is a restraint, a civil restraint. People are scared of jail. They don't do bad things if they're scared of jail. The threat of punishment, the law, contains, this should be obvious to us, the law of God in the Old Testament contains very clear statements of warning. If you don't do this, you will be cursed. And Paul connects that when he speaks in Romans 13 to the governing authorities. The current governing authorities. Nero, the emperor, not a guy we think of as a godly person, and yet still authority given by God a leader given by God. And he says, would you have no fear? Do what's good. You don't need to fear Nero if you do what's good. Because Nero's not given for the good. He's given to punish evil. Therefore, the law of God is revealed and used to restrain sin. Second, any questions on that? Second. A mirror. Or if you want a more fancy term, pedagogical. 
The law is given as a teacher, as a revealer. It's a mirror that shows and reveals our sin. This is Romans 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. I'll read it. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what Calvin describes as a mirror. The law holds us up. It shows us who we are. It shows us that we are sinful. It shows us that we cannot earn our way to heaven. We cannot attain it on our own. And this is why, for example, we have in the Old Covenant the sacrifices. This is why we have the regulations of the priests. So this is one of the reasons why everything in Israel was regulated to show that even in a temporary society set up by God, even in this you know, minimal level of righteousness, Israel could not attain holiness and perfection. They still would often become unclean every single day. Therefore, this second use is to reveal sin. It's to reveal sin to Israel. They would seek atonement ultimately in Christ. It is to reveal sin in us that we might forsake our sin, cling to Christ, seek grace in the gospel. Calvin writes this. This use of the law means that we would dismiss the stupid opinion of our own strength. Calvin's words, not mine. That we would come to realize that we stand and are upheld by God's hand alone. That naked and empty-handed, we flee to His mercy, rest entirely in it, hide deep within it, and seize upon it alone for all righteousness and merit. This law is not simply for the unbeliever, therefore. This use of the law is not simply to show other people their sin. It is to show you yours that you might continually seek Christ and cling to Him. Questions on that use of the law? Finally, for the Christian, the law is normative. Or the law is a teacher. It is also in Calvin's phrase, the Christian's rule of life. It is the Christian's rule of life. It's the guide that we have to live before God. This is Romans 3, verse 31. This gets back to the whole question we've been dealing with. How can we uphold? How can Paul say we uphold the law? Because he's not speaking about the law in its political or its pedagogical, its mirror sense. He's speaking about the law received, as I, as I put it in our prayer, received from the nail-scarred hands of Christ. We receive the law from the one who has fulfilled it. We just had our general assembly, and one of the things that um, occasionally happens in the general assembly is that people actually read the book of church order that we have in the PCA. And if you read through it and start at the very beginning, there are seven preliminary principles delivered actually by a Southerner in 1861, a guy named Thornwell, an interesting fella. And um, one of the principles says, Jesus Christ is the only lawgiver in Zion. 
I think that's a very memorable phrase. I'm not a lawgiver. You're not a lawgiver. We do not have the right to make new laws. We only have the right to minister and declare Jesus' laws. Nobody has the right to make new laws and press them upon you. But we do have Christians, and particularly Christ shepherds, Christ servants, have the right to press upon each of us what Christ has declared. Because the law for the Christian is a guide for grateful living. This is why in Ephesians 6, what does Paul do in Ephesians 6? He applies the fifth commandment to Christians. He quotes the fifth commandment, Ephesians 6, verse 2. He applies it to Christians. This is one of the reasons, even as Mike mentioned, that we believe the moral law still applies, but more on that in a few seconds. So these three, these three functions of the law. Let me go ahead and show you where this is in the Old Testament. Let me ask you to turn to Joshua 24. This is really the third point, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it now. Joshua 24. Very famous. This is the part of this people have on their walls very often. You know, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. It, it, it sounds nicely on the wall. It fits nicely on the wall of your house. But Joshua 24 is actually very interesting because it, it reveals these different uses of the law in the Old Covenant. So, verse 15. As for me and my house, Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For Joshua, for Joshua's family, he is using the third use. He is saying the law, the serving of the Lord, is my rule of life. That's my house's, my household's rule of life. We will keep the law. We will seek to follow the law. And yet, if you skip down a few verses, what you have the people answer. Verse 16, they say, oh, we're never going to forsake God. We're never going to forsake the Lord. The Lord did all these things for us. He brought us out of the land. He, he did all these great signs. Therefore, verse 18, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And so they're trying to say, look, we're going to follow the third use as well. But look, look at what Joshua says. He says, verse 19, he said, the people, you're not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you. They say, no, no, we, we will do it. We'll serve him. Joshua becomes a lawyer. He says, all right, you're witnesses. They say, yes, we're witnesses. We'll, we'll take that part. Verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord your God. He tells them to put away their idols. And yet, with the Israelites, therefore, what is Joshua doing? He is using the second use. He is using the law as a mirror to say, you won't put away your idols. You won't do that. I'll tell you to do it. I'll, I'll give you the command right here, but you won't do it. 
You're not able to serve the Lord your God. He is holy. You're unholy. And so what you have here in the Old Covenant is this distinction, this use of the law. This begins to answer the question, therefore, and I'm cutting really to the, one of the application points for this, this morning. <clears throat> how can the New Testament, how can Paul say we uphold the law, but we're not under the law? How, can, how do we resolve this apparent contradiction in the Bible? Answer. holy and righteous altogether. And it reflects, teaches us who our God is in light of who our God is, who we are. And so, in that first comment you made, you said that the we're not under the law, 614, we're not, we're not under the law as regards our salvation. So what, what is the doctrinal word for that? What is the word that, uh, that speaks about our salvation not being by works of the grace. law. Salvation by grace alone. By grace alone, yeah. And what we, what, we, what we call that is justification. So when Paul says we're, we're under grace, we're not under law, he's not saying throw out the Old Testament. He's not saying burn parts of your Bible. He's not saying that uh, no rules, just do whatever you want to. Free love, free life. You're always right. Just, just follow your heart. He's not saying, you know, uh, a kind of Jiminy Cricket theology. Uh, your, your conscience be your guide. He's saying, we're not under law as it serves to lead us to merit life because the law is a mirror. The law shows us our sin. He's using the word law there in its second use as a mirror. But he can say we uphold the law because he's speaking here not about our justification, but about our sanctification. Therefore, we receive the law from the lawgiver, the only lawgiver in Zion, who is King Jesus Christ, who has died, been crucified, become a curse. He has taken on the curse due to people who break the law, covenant breakers. He has been cursed. That's Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3 because cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He's taken on the curse that we might receive the blessing. Thus far, the free use of the law, that's actually more time than I want to spend on that, but uh, it's important, so uh, it's good to talk about that. Let's go now into the three types of the law. If that's all right, any other questions or comments on this? Three uses, second trio. And this may be a little more familiar to some, I suppose. We've already covered it a little bit. Second trio, what I'll call three types of the law. And this is, or the threefold division, as it's sometimes referred to, the threefold division of the law. First, we've already heard a little bit about this. First is the moral law. This is what uh, 
Mike mentioned. Mike already made the distinction. Now, many dispute what I'm about to say, but our confession of faith says the moral law does forever bind everyone, justified people and not justified people, to obey it. Because God, the Creator, gave it. And Christ, nor, neither Christ nor the gospel doth in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Very critical, very somewhat controversial point. The moral law, this type of law, continues. Continues into the New Testament. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, I didn't want to get into all this. Um, no, there are no, no, no. It's, it's a fine point. Um, there are distinctions between moral, eternal, natural, all sorts of other type of things. There's a connection, yes. But I mean, the only distinction I would make is that because it's written down, because it is that, that there's often a distinction made between moral law and the, the the eternal law of God, only because this was this was written down. And the eternal law is not written down as such because it's in God. That's a very technical distinction. Um, but the, the content of the moral law is the written form of what, what, uh, what's often called God's natural law. Um, and both of those are connected to the, the eternal law of, of God. But that's, again, I'm, I'm getting off track here. Um, now, this, this moral law is basically, let me define it, a core of moral obligations expressed in every revelation of God's law. A core of obligations expressed in every revelation of God's law, basic to all revelation, rooted in God's character. So it's a core of obligations, obey, disobey, core of obligations rooted in God's character, rooted in holiness, Roughly corresponding with the law written on our hearts, as Romans talks about it. Um, traditionally, the Ten Commandments are viewed as a summary, not the whole, don't confuse that, a summary of this moral law. So, for example, just as one argument to demonstrate the moral law continues, there are several. This is one argument I would encourage you to read through Romans chapter 1. Read through Romans chapter 1 sometime, and you will find every single one of the Ten Commandments listed there in some form or another. But in case that argument doesn't suffice, let me give you uh, maybe a couple more here. Let me give you at least one more. <clears throat> Turn to Romans 13 again. I've already mentioned Ephesians 6, where Paul uses the fifth commandment. He applies it to today. But Romans 13, 8 and following is really a crucial text. Romans 13, 8 and following. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
for the commandments. Which commandments, Paul? You shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Classic, classic understanding. You know, let's see what Paul does here. He takes the Old Testament Ten Commandments. He takes the Old Testament law, and he doesn't say those are done away with because of Jesus. He doesn't say throw that out because Jesus has come. He says, actually, verse eight. I'm going to give you a commandment. Oh, want no one anything. Verse ten. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love fulfills the law. Therefore, he says to Christians, here's how you should live now. And he quotes the Old Testament law. He quotes the Ten Commandments. And he summarizes, he can even summarize the Ten Commandments down into, if you want a a summary of a summary, if you want the short summary, it's love. Of course, you think of the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor. That is a summary of this moral law. The summary of the Ten Commandments which itself is a summary of God's moral law. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are some among us, particularly those maybe of a Baptist strain, I think Annie Stanley does something as well, but Annie Stanley is a whole other kit caboodle, that would argue that with the coming of Christ, this no longer applies. Now, how could that argument have power? Let's go into the other two divisions of the law to see why that argument can sound really right. Second, and this has already been mentioned, I think fairly obvious for many of us, the so-called ceremonial law. Our confession says that ceremonial laws containing several typological laws, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, in other words, pointing forward to Christ, are now abrogated under the New Testament. So we don't bring blood sacrifices to church. You don't bring your animals. You don't bring your turtle doves. You don't bring your uh, goats and sheep in here and kill them. This is not an altar. You don't see me wielding a knife, you know, and this sort of thing, cutting animals. We don't do that because Christ, the perfect sacrifice, has once and for all fulfilled the ceremonial law. Numerous passages attest to this. Hebrews 10, Acts, mostly the entire book, but most particularly Acts chapter 10. Christ himself says, Mark 7, 19. Well, technically it was uh, Mark adding in. Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. When Christ says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then Mark adds, parenthetically, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. That's Mark 7, 19. So here's one answer, by the way, to the question I get, the objection I gave earlier. Why do you Christians pick and choose your part of your Bible? You eat shrimp, you 
still think that homosexuals, you know, homosexuality, excuse me, uh, should be forbidden. Why do you pick and choose? Well, the answer is we seek to follow the lawgiver, Jesus Christ. We seek to follow the lawgiver. We, we love our Lord so much, we want to listen to his word. And so he declares that these ceremonial laws of the old covenant are abrogated. They are done away with. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, and the Sermon on the Mount is really where people go if they want to do away with all the law, but it's, it's nonetheless true that Christ over and over again says, do not think that I have come to do this. You have heard it said, I say. You've heard it said, I say. And therefore, in some sense, Christ is transcending Moses and the prophets. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. The action, but I say to you, actually, your thoughts, even looking Thinking, the intentions of your heart are what's at stake. Now, was that new? Was that new is the question. No. In fact, uh, the point of, let well, us just say the point of circumcision, just to pick out one thing, the purpose of circumcision was to point to an, a need for inward cleansing, inward spiritual cleansing of the heart. This is, this is promised in the prophet. The prophet shows us this. Jeremiah shows us this. Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones. God says, I must put my spirit within you. So the law was never simply about external actions. It was always aiming at holiness of the heart and yet showing us that we could not attain that. But Christ is revealing this in more clear and more perfect sense. This is why Christ says, Matthew 5, 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, let's get to the third category, if that's all right. Any questions on any of the stuff? Um, just as a side note, by the way, I suppose I should mention also Romans 14. That there are some who argue very strongly this is a made-up distinction, and we shouldn't use it. That's, I would take that argument somewhat seriously. I mean, because... There is no verse in the Bible that says there are three types of laws in Leviticus. Moral, ceremonial, civil. There is no verse in the Bible. And so if you just go by verses, you're not going to get the argument. Of course, we, we don't just go by verses. We, we don't look for literal verses. In our, that's not how we interpret the Bible. We have to read the Bible and look at what it means in its given genre. That is the literal meaning, the literary meaning. And yet, I would argue, if you compare Romans 13 and Romans 14, where Paul talks about food laws, he himself, the Bible itself, makes this distinction between moral, ceremonial, and then I've already mentioned, right? Romans 13, 1 to 7, civil. I would argue in just in those two chapters, 13 and 14 of Romans, you find this distinction made, that one continues, and these two, as we'll point out in a second, uh, do not. Civil law, this is the law given, sometimes called the judicial law. This relates to Israel as a political body, as a theocracy. Our 
Our confession of faith says this. God gave several judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, with Israel, the state of Israel in the Old Testament, not obliging anybody now further any more than the general equity thereof may require. That phrase, general equity, is key. Simply means we as Christians need to study the law, the Old Testament law and its civil and political judicial force, and to say, what principle does this show about life? Let me give you the example. I've already mentioned it earlier. The law to have a railing around your roof. Why do you need a railing around your roof in the old, when you live in the Middle East back in the day? Someone's on the roof, and so what would happen if there's no railing? People would fall off. People fall off roofs. What happened? They die. They get hurt. It's a huge problem. And yet, we do not require, uh, I've not yet heard a Christian argue that we should have railings on the roofs. Maybe some people, I'm sure somebody could make that argument. There's a lot of people out there. However, how are we to interpret that argument? This is where Paul goes, by the way. When, when he, he speaks about um, the ox not getting muzzled, the ox can have a little snack while he's working. That's my ox noise. And he applies that specific law of Israel, that social law of Israel, he applies it in terms of its general principle which is the worker is worthy of his words. I'm a minister. I get my living from the gospel. Therefore, notice carefully, he does not say that's irrelevant. He does not say, you know what, Israel was a a, a weird theocracy. They did weird things there. They had a weird system of government. Throw that out the window. We're Christians now. We're we're Americans. We're democratic. We're amazing. He says, no, actually, there is a general principle behind that that we ought to ferret. We have to study. We have to think about it. What, what does this mean? And so when it comes to the railing, just by way of example, maybe we ought to have some uh, safety in the workplace. Maybe it's good to have, and this is, I'm not meaning to make this, maybe it's good to have a railing on your stairs. But you've got to think about it. It's, it's not just a one-to-one easy application. Let's stone people who disobey their parents, as it was the law in Israel. Because here's the deal, and this is what Taylor mentioned at the very beginning. We're not one nation in the church. We're every nation. We're a transnational, a transcultural, a global entity. And we do not have the power of the sword. Therefore, here is the key point, and I know it a couple of hands. If there's one point you take away from, all, from this, this particular topic right here, This is where people get get mixed up. The corollary to OT Israel is not America or whatever nation you live in. The corollary is New Testament church when it comes to these civil laws. That's where Paul goes when he speaks about it. That, That principle right there will save you from so much heartache. So much heartache. Because really, when it comes to each of these laws, there are errors. 
There are three types of people who make errors connected to each one of these. The, the, I just mentioned the civil type, which is some people think Old Testament Israel relates to Britain, America, Russia, Byzantium. I mean, this is what the Byzantines argued. They thought it was Byzantium. I've read the, I've read the stuff. We're, we're Israel. No, you're not. You're Byzantium. You're, you're fallen. And we do the same thing a thousand years later. When it comes to ceremonial, today in the church, we have people, uh, particularly the, a group known as Hebrew Roots, among others, who seek to follow the ceremonial law. They hold the festivals, particularly. They seek to dress in Jewish garb. They want to act like they're still under the food laws. They follow kosher. And then there are those, and I've already mentioned, you know, particularly in the dispensationalist. We'll have a, we'll have a class on this in a few weeks. The dispensational viewpoint that looks at the moral law and says that does not apply. These the danger here is to apply these incorrectly. The danger here is to not apply this and to say, I only follow the New Testament laws. Which begins to cut up the Bible. Which we'll get into more detail. Elijah, and then Greg. That sort of Baptist construction of the moral law. So essentially you're saying they're going to say they're going to say that principal thing you apply to the civic law, that's how I'm going to treat the moral law as articulated in the Old Testament. It is principles, there's wisdom, but I am not bound by it. And then they'll say, however, fortunately for me, in the New Testament, they restated all but the uh, and so, is that sort of the Baptist view you're articulating? I think that's a fair assumption. You can look at D.A. Karst and find this this, uh, um, this argument. It goes along, by the way, with, again, a, a division between the covenant given at Sinai and the new covenant. It goes quite nicely if I believe that what God was doing with Israel is qualitatively different, a qualitatively different way of salvation was provided to Israel as what was provided to us today. Therefore, if Israel was not saved by grace, not saved by looking forward to Christ, if they were saved by doing the law, then that makes more sense. And my, part of my argument has been over these many weeks to point full forward, basic, basic idea, there is one covenant of grace throughout the Scriptures, throughout Genesis 3.15. And, and but I'm happy to be, if, if, uh, if some of y'all have other there are arguments to raise. You're welcome to. I know we have uh, folks from the Baptist circles that maybe want to chime in. Greg, uh, I think you get the last question or comment. I said, "That's fine." Yeah, Greg made a very, very good point that maybe the muzzle on the ox is where we get the uh, lunch after church. I, I do graze occasionally. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I will appreciate it in a in a couple of, in an hour or so. Um, oh, I ha I have more here. Um, anything else I want to cover? Um, I don't necessarily know if I have anything. Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's about it.
Um, yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll stop there. I could say more. Any uh, any last questions, comments? Let me uh, let me ask Martin if you wouldn't mind closing us in a word of prayer. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.